Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Good evening. I'm David Hepworth. If, if you're worried that Mark Allen's not here, he's over there, okay? He's, he wants to see if I can deal with the first half of this evening on my own, you know, so he may get up and leave in disgust halfway through. Uh, but he'll be joining me for, for the second half. Uh, usual drill. Two halves, break in between to get drinks buy books and so forth. In the second half, we're going to be talking to Johnny Rogan about his mammoth. I think the expressions magnum and opus are justified in this particular case. Actually, can you, can you be seen behind those? They are they're absolutely huge. Yeah, lie them down, lie for goodness down. sake. They've got plenty of time. I think they're actually taller than they are. <laughs> okay. So, um, welcome to Word in Your Ear. There are, there are cases of uh, those, those place names in New Jersey that uh, are name-checked in Bruce Springsteen songs. Places like Asbury Park seem to have, to the likes of us over here, distant glamour. It's not the same to the people out there. To the people out there, those places, to the American ear, those places sound as mundane as places like Luton. (laughs) And our guest, in this word in your ear, has managed to connect the concept of Luton with the concept of Bruce Springsteen and also the concept of Pakistan in a way that I don't think anybody would have envisaged in the past. And uh, or dare dream, and so would you. Would you welcome journalist, author, broadcaster, Safras Mansour? Hi. So we're talking about Bruce Springsteen and me, as in you, as in me, uh, as in hopefully some people in the room, as in hopefully some people in the room, on the occasion of. Uh, you know, the paperback publication of Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, because he desperately needs the, uh, 
additional sales. The hardback the didn't go very well. Did it the hardback scarcely moved. It was nailed to the shelves. You know, uh, I, I can't imagine how poorly he did for an advance for that book. Uh, but anyway, but also about your book that actually... Normally, we're pretty quick with, uh, with book releases here. And in the case of Johnny's book, Johnny's book doesn't come out for another few weeks. But I'm, I, I, frankly, we're a bit tardy with your book. Because your book came out when? Uh, well, it's the 10th anniversary. Oh, <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Actually, there is a fresher peg, which you don't know. Which is oh, good, good, good. Which good. I'm currently working on the feature film adaptation of this. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, we're getting very, very close to, uh, to places. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I've been immersed in adapting this currently with, um, with Gurinder Chada, who did Bender Like Beckham. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, so what's the chances question. of that happening? Uh, I'm not really allowed to say too much. Right, OK. But put it this way, a couple of weeks ago, I had to write an email to Bruce and send the script to him to get his permission for the music um, because he owns the music and you can't, you can't do it. I was so saying, that was a very so, bizarre conversation to have. <laughs> so how did the email begin? Does it, does it go, you may not remember, but... <laughs> no, no, no. Um, well, I've met him a number of times over the last... 25 years so he kind of knows me um, and I kind of know him but mostly kind of hanging outside hotels and venues um, and so yeah, and he's read the book so, so I know that he's got that connection and stuff um, but it was, a, it was a quite a weird thing because you're basically trying to sell the idea saying that you can change my life if you say yes to this yeah. and you will destroy it if you say no <laughs> um, but you don't want to make it, you don't want to write that to be the only thing in the letter. No. So you try and sort of build other things up. So, uh, but it was, it was quite interesting because having been immersed in Springsteen for so long, I realised that all I have to do is basically quote his lyrics back to him and say, as you yourself once said... Oh. You know, as you once said, talk about a dream, try to make it real. Uh. Well, Bruce, I am now talking about a dream. Will you help me make it real? You know, so... It, I was trying to do that kind of an approach. Well, best of luck with that. (laughs) Now, frankly, uh, that's the cover of the book as it was published, as you say, ten years ago. But I found, uh, through my my careful research on the internet, this this cover, which was the proposed cover, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, basically, you know, with publishers, I like this idea because I was trying to... Anyone who knows the, the cover of the album... This is basically borrowing the font and the style of that, mixing it with the story of me, me and my dad. Um, but the publishers eventually said that this would only really appeal to people who knew Springsteen already, and they didn't want to only just appeal to them. So this got discarded. But I feel like it was a much more emotionally engaging kind of cover, you know, kind of gives, well, gives it all that. It's, it's useful for this exercise because it, it, it enables you to tell tell the story of the book for anybody who hasn't read it. Yeah, and it's about. You and your father. Yeah, I mean, basically, coming to this country. you mentioned, um, and I have to say, slightly disparagingly about Luton. Um, and I, and well, I, I've been there. I, um, well, I mean, I think the key, the, the key thing about Luton, I find, that a couple of years ago, it was voted the crappiest town in the country. See. Um, but the, the thing I find incredible about it is that it was voted this by the people who live there. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, so I was growing up there, and I grew up there, and I was a teenager in 1987. And the basic story uh, of my life is that I was growing up in a very kind of normal working class. Dad works in a Vauxhall car factory, traditional Muslim background. So the usual expectations of what that was going to lead to. And I didn't have... You know, often when people discover music or they have heroes, there's normally an older brother who's kind of cool who introduces them or there's a teacher or maybe even a dad. There's somebody who shows them that there could be another world out there that could be something that could be more interesting. It doesn't have to be Bruce. It could be David Bowie. It could be Morrissey. And I didn't have any of those things, but I knew that the life that I was leading there was a really mundane, uncreative life. So I would look at the TV and I would think, how does one get into a world of ideas? You know, how does one enter that world? And why is it so different from the one I'm in? So that was 1987. The music I was listening to was, you know, it was, it was not John Peel, it was Steve Wright. You know, it was that kind of mainstream Radio 1 sort of stuff, you know? Um, and then I went to college, 1987, and this guy... A Sikh guy wearing a turban tells me that the secret to the universe is in the lyrics of Bruce Springsteen. Um, and I didn't know anything, so I said, isn't he just like an ancient white guy, because he was like 35, isn't he like an ancient white guy making music for Americans? You know, what, what the... And he's like, you're an idiot, here's some cassettes. Um, and he played, and, I, and, I, and when I listened to them that night, it was like... And I, Springsteen once said that most music is about Saturday night. It's about escape. It's about forgetting. But his music was about Monday to Friday. And I was like, this is what I want. I want music that confronts reality. And interestingly enough, my friend got into Springsteen after watching Whistle Test that, that you did about him. So it, you, you, are, you are the godfather in some ways to, uh, to the story, but you're not going to get a percentage. And no, so, no, uh, sadly. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's basically about that. And then it's about fatherhood in the sense of who do, you, who, do you, who do you give authority to? Do you give authority to your father, who tells you that life has to be a certain way, or do you find an alternative father figure, hero figure, who points out a different kind of future? So in a way, I swap one father figure for another. Now, I think the achievement of the, of the book, certainly as far as I was concerned, it, is that it, it um, you know, that, that kind of... Most people go through some form of that idea of rebelling against their father and so forth and shaking off what the expectations of your parents are. But your expectations, your parents' expectations were of a completely different order from what most people in this room would probably have gone through. Now, just tell us about the journey of your father to this country and being joined by the family. And I mean, this is, kind of, this is the stuff which only when you have kids yourself, you realise how nuts all this stuff is. You know, like when you're a kid yourself, you don't really think about it. So basically, my dad came to Britain in 1963 from Pakistan. He left his two children, who were, one of them was only like nine months old and the other one was about two years old and my mum, and he basically spent the next 11 years in Luton and Hemel Hempstead and other uh, delightful places, sending money back and occasional letters, but not really seeing them. He only had two trips back to Pakistan during one of those trips I was conceived. Um, so you have 11 years where my mum is raising three kids on her own. You've got my dad living a totally different life in Britain through the 60s, God knows what, and then in 1974, my mum comes with three of us. And this is the bit that really freaks me out now that I've got kids. That suddenly a guy who was 
30 when he left Pakistan, is now 43, and he suddenly has to be a dad to three kids that he doesn't know. And that's the bit that I find. So you know all the stuff about the expectations and things. I just think, what would that be like if suddenly somebody presented three kids and said, oh, by the way, these are three kids. You haven't seen them for 11 years. Now be responsible for them and be the father that you have no idea how to be. And so when I think about you know, fathers and distance and emotional distance and not being hugged and not saying, I'm, nowadays I'm much more understanding because I just think he didn't have a clue. I, think, I didn't realise that when I was right, you know, when I was a kid, right, but that's right. what I think now. Now, just talk about the, you know, the, the struggle your mother had because you know, she had to come from Pakistan yeah. with, what, two of you? Three. Three, three of yeah. you. Didn't speak any English. Didn't speak any English. And I mean, I, I, barely anything to eat on the flight. Nothing that? to eat on the flight. We flew from Af- via Afghanistan, lands, and uh, I mean, it's like here's the kind of bonkers stuff. My brother, um, we, my, we, you know, we had an outside, you know, the, 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 the toilet situation was very much au natural back back in Pakistan. So there was just no, you know, so you just go out there, and. I'm told that my brother used to would, would get into trouble with the neighbours when he first moved because he would sleep in his bedroom and whenever he needed a wee, he would just open the window and wee out the window because <laughs> that was just what he was what was you know what he knew. So that was the kind of cultural world and journey that one was making and one was growing up with. And my mum didn't speak any English, and you know she was living with this guy who she hardly knew. Then she had to try and work. And that, and, th- and this was all happening in 70s Luton at the time when the National Front were kind of getting out there is when we were really terrified of going out onto the streets. We were told, don't go out on a Saturday afternoon because that's when the football fans are going to be rampaging. You've got that kind of toxic fear as well. Um, it's quite a heady brew, you know, for a kid trying to grow up. And then this... You know, your father didn't, didn't kind of... Um indulge you in any way in your kind of childhood and teenage dreams, did he? He, he was very much confronting you with, life is hard, it's really tough, yeah. your job is to get out there and, you know, ultimately get some money, get a qualification, and so forth. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that when you watch American movies or you kind of grow up with TV and things and you sort of think, oh God, these are the sorts of things that dads are meant to say. And then you realise that your dad is saying almost like the exact opposite. So my dad used to say stuff like, there are no, there's no such thing as a friend. You know, basically everybody uses each other. So just get in there first. You know, it's like Donald Trump kind of character or whatever, you know. Um, so I was given quite a lot of sort of, you know, hardcore advice. But the basic thing was I came from a culture where you don't, individuality wasn't as important as obeying your parents. You know, it wasn't about the individual, it's about doing and none. And the other thing is that when you've got parents who have struggled and sacrificed, they can lay on the guilt in a different way. When they can say, we suffered, don't screw it up with your kind of crazy dreams of artistic stuff, you know, do a job. I remember when um, I say this in the book that when I was uh, at first year at uni, I wanted to go to America for my, um, uh, during the summer holidays. And my dad said to me, there's a factory job you could do in Luton during the summer where you could make money. Why would you go to America where you'd be spending money? That was his mentality, you know. So it was totally two different worlds, but it was a world of expectation, duty, and obedience rather than, you know, the kind of things that I might be aspiring to. Because, you know, even, even when you were at college and so forth and beyond, yeah. your, your, your expectation was still you're going to marry a girl from home and, and you know conduct a, a certain kind of life pretty similar to what your parents had had. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I used to, uh, right up to my early 30s, actually. Only, the only reason I rescued my, saved myself from that was by getting so old that I was no longer in the kind of marriageable market. <laughs> and then I was able to do what I wanted to do. So I kind of had to kind of ride through the point where nobody actually would have wanted to marry so, me. In the end, your mother said, uh, you know... You know, you've got one offer, take it, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. But, like, my mum used to do this thing where she would just leave phone numbers and random details in the, in the house when I came home. But they were always slightly wrong. So one time she got me at a bad moment and she said, there's a girl and she's a dentist from Cambridge. And I was thinking, well, you know, University of Cambridge is pretty cool, so, you know, she's going to be educated and dentist, you know, you've got to work. So I actually did ring her and turned out she was a dietitian. And she lived near Cambridge, so she didn't quite get... So, so the things that... They were never quite as sold as, as, as I thought they were. But, yeah, there's a lot of, there was a lot of guilt and a lot of um, emotional blackmail and things. But, you know, that's the thing about Springsteen, in, in a way, as well, is, you know, that in the end, I think what you do is you mine all your demons and you mine all the stuff that's a bit embarrassing or hard or difficult. I'm sort of saying it like now. It was not fun to, to live through. But you try and make something hopefully meaningful out of it to try and to use it in some way, you know? Right. So you're turned on to Bruce Springsteen by your, your Sikh mate. Yeah. Whose name is? Amalak. Well, I'm still my mate, yeah. Right, OK. And the two of you go along... He, to... he was a bit disappointed. I said I was going to be meeting you, and he said, yeah, he, he, he's a traitor because he didn't like human touch alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> they don't forget. Do they? <laughs> so... How did the two of you pursue your Bruce Springsteen? You were, what, 15, 16 or something? Yeah, 16, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know how many people here are Springsteen fans or whether they're mostly agnostics. Are there any fans here? Is anybody? Okay, okay. So, you know, people sort of ask, how many times have you been to see him and what have you? Um, So I saw him first time June 25th, 1988. First gig I went to Wembley Stadium. And then basically it did... I mean, it's a hard thing to kind of say, but it was obsessional. Um, So I pretty much went and saw him at every British date between then and, you know, the the late 2010s or whatever. So I've seen upwards of 130 to 150 times. Oh, right. Somewhere around there. Um, And, I mean, some of the the details are hilarious, though. So I... um, there's a photograph where I met him at the Manchester Holiday Inn in oh, Manchester. That's, that's nice. That's, uh, <laughs> this is one of your, one of your so great this is, snaps from yeah, the pit. This is what it's like when Bruce Springsteen falls on top of you. Oh, I see. Yeah. This is me doing my cover version of Tunnel of Love cover, the album <laughs> cover. The bootlace tie and everything. That's us at the... That's me and Amalak at the boardwalk in um, Asbury Park. Uh, and that's, uh, that, was, that was in Manchester. But... Um, there was one time in Manchester where basically I, uh, I stood, I, 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 got, I pretended I booked a room in the hotel that I knew he was in and had all my album covers with me. And I was in the sort of restaurant, just kind of casually, just hoping I was going to bump into it. Carrying them around in the restaurant. Yeah, yeah, we're not in a plastic bag. And, um, <laughs> but the hilarious thing, he didn't turn up, but Roy Bitten and everyone else did. And John Landau. And then I was just like accidentally just like leaning down and they all spilled out all over. And my kind of casual, I'm just a guest at the hotel, completely, um, completely crashed. But we didn't have anything else to do. So we travelled around the world to see him. But I mean, I don't know. The thing about fans, and you sort of must have explored this, is there is a real tribal, collegiate, lovely atmosphere, a sense of brotherhood when you're travelling around. And you're seeing the same people from one city to another. And, you know, you end up becoming mates on the roll call, etc. And it is like an alternative community, so it can be quite addictive. 
How did you how did you dress for these things? Like you say, you adopt the bootlace tie. Yeah. Did you did okay, you attempt so to kind of you know look like actually, an American grease you know monkey? Or something? I'm not sure I mentioned this in the book, but you seem to be asking a very good leading question because I um, 25 years ago I think was a the Human Touch toy in the Wembley Arena. I slept out. This is back before Ticketmaster nonsense. I slept out for two nights on the concrete concrete outside Wembley Arena, and I got six front row seats, um, row A. Seat 33, I think it was, right in the middle, smack bang in the middle. And I was like, okay, if I'm going to be front row, I'm going to make sure that Springsteen recognises me. So I wore um, a waistcoat, which is never really a good look, but I wore a, I wore a waistcoat and I wore a red bandana. <laughs> I looked like an idiot, but he did spot me. And on the first night, he, um, he actually came out to the, to the lip of the stage, gave me his telecaster to hold while he took his shirt off. So the bandana waistcoat shebang did actually work. Very good. Very good. So that's Wembley Arena, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 92, yeah. You're on the front row. Yeah. I was probably on the, the row behind you that mm-hmm. night, actually. Because I'd managed to get... I'd managed to swap a ticket to be on the second row. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't like press or media or anybody like that being yeah. anywhere he can see. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's one of my rare experiences... Of being on the front, near the front, at a huge show, and of course, most big shows, you realise that the the bit you're trying to see is actually a tiny bit of the huge picture in front of you. Yeah. Whereas when you go on the first or second row, you can't escape from. You, you look all the way there, you look all the way there, you're still on stage, aren't you? you know? I just think the people at the front are having a different experience than anybody Completely else. Completely different. It's a different world, it's a different experience. Um, and it's quite and you can see the artists and the band, you can see them looking at you. Yeah, it's addictive, actually. Because it's they look addictive. around during numbers, you know, they, they just do, you know. And, then, and if they've met you before, you'll see them notice you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and he, he does a lot of the pointing and stuff. And the funny thing is, because I've seen him so often, I, 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 he, at the Olympic Stadium, which was only a couple of years ago, when he did his Born in the US, when he played the whole of Born in the USA, um, I was sort of at the lip of the... It was a huge, massive thing. I was at the lip of the stage, uh, you know, but it's like a huge barrier. It's about 50 yards still from the front. And he was running along, and he was literally singing, and he stopped when he noticed me, turned around and shook, his, shook my hand, and then carried on doing it. Even in the middle of 60,000, he still kind of was able to kind of focus on what was in front of him, which right. I was pretty cool. What's the best Bruce Springsteen show you've seen? Uh, were you at the St. Luke's concert? The one in the church this, during the no. Seeger sessions? No. You know the one? No. The one, the BBC Four sessions one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only reason was, I was as close to him as I am to you. Right. I mean, he could have, like, sung the telephone directory, but if you're going to be that close, that's pretty awesome, isn't it? Right. But I always prefer... I prefer the Tom Joe tour. I just prefer intimacy. You know, I just prefer the smaller venues where you can... You know that phrase you must know about um, Bob Dylan fans? Is it Bob Gaze? Where they just, like, stare at him. They just cannot believe that the man who is Bob Dylan is in front of them. And the man who did this and that and 66. and uh, He's there right in front of me. That's what I do when I'm very close, that close to Springsteen. I think, my God, this is the man who was on the cover of 75. You know, Tommy Newsweek, this is the man. There's all this stuff is processing, which you can't do that in a stadium. No, no, but don't you... Don't you ever feel uh, sympathy for the artists, for Springsteen and Bob Dylan, the classic cases of this? Because I've been, I've been at Bob Dylan concerts very near the front of the Albert Hall, where you can see the audience the way that he sees them. Yeah. And you think, my God, he must be terrifying. <laughs> no, because seriously, if you're Bob Dylan, you've gone on tour throughout Europe, the same people know, have turned up every night. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're looking at them, you think, 
he's mad. I wish she was a bit further away. I hope Sanso hasn't got a gun. Seriously, you know what I mean? And she could do with a shower. It's been three nights or whatever, yeah. No, seriously. No, you, you... I mean, I think it must be weird when you know that there's 50,000, but you only just ever see the same people right at the front. I can see why that would be, would be frustrating. When did you first see him? I first saw Bruce Springsteen in, in uh, Thanksgiving Day 1970... No, 1980. River Tour. Just okay. before, the week before, Bob Dylan, before John Lennon was killed. OK. In uh, Madison Square Garden on the River Tour. I mean, the interest, I was going to say, the interesting thing is that at that time... What I found, I don't know if you've noticed, is that when I was, going, when I was getting into Bruce, I was, it was basically a completely uncool thing to be, you know, getting into. Whereas now there is a resurgence of younger people who are kind of getting into him again, which didn't happen during the, during the 90s. And, well, yeah, or, maybe. And, that may be true. I, I, I tend to take the view that uh, with young people... Young people. With young yeah. people. Uh, with Bruce Springsteen, I tend to say, if you get a chance to go and see him, you should go and see him. Because when he stops doing what he's doing, nobody will be doing what he's doing. Yeah. It won't exist anymore. This will go away, you know, like the Glenn Miller Orchestra or Frank Sinatra of the Count Basie Band. That experience will not be available anymore once he stops because he's the only person who's doing it, you know. And you should, whether you like it or not, you should admire the fact that it's being done. You it know? comes from a tradition that doesn't sort of exist so much, you know, mining... I, jo- I think it's a tradition that didn't exist before he did it. Yeah. That, that's the thing that's, you know, I, I think about it, there's a lot that, um, you know, I don't think he's the greatest songwriter, I don't think he's the greatest singer, he's not the greatest guitarist. He's not. Glad you didn't do the rock and roll induction he's, speech. He's clearly, well, yeah. <laughs> clearly not. But on stage, he puts it together better than anybody's ever done it. But, I mean, I think, uh, I think a slightly kinder way of putting that is that. Uh, I think what I respect about him is that he's, a, he's somebody who's a toiler. He really works oh, at the crop. Yeah. He's not somebody for whom anything is effortless. He says he hasn't got an amazing voice. You know, but his songwriting, I think he, everything comes through work and work and work and effort, as opposed to somebody who just sort of knocks it out. And I, I appreciate that as well. Oh, definitely. I, that, I completely identify with that. You know, I, I mean, talking a bit about you know, his, his book, that, um, the, the stuff I like best in the book... You know, there's obviously all the stuff about his father and, you know, which, uh, you know, for anybody who hasn't read it, it's an extraordinary... You know, he's just hinted in the past about his father, whereas in this case he talks about the whole difficult relationship with his father and his father's bipolar and, you know... The violence as well. Had had all kinds of problems. Really different people, his father and his mother. His mother a very gregarious, Italian, outgoing. His father, gloomy, Dutch-Irish, I think. Mm. Um sat in the kitchen in the dark drinking beer. And, uh, but the other stuff in the book that I love is all the stuff just about work. It's just the stuff about what... And, and of course, here's the guy who's, who's famous for singing about the working life. He's never done a hand turn <laughs> of anything that anybody in this room would call work in his life. You're sounding increasingly like my dad. But... Uh... <laughs> But um, look, but he admits he? that. He admits that, though. He's, it's true, I isn't mean, it? The interesting thing is that people have said. But what was interesting in the book is he talks about he now realizes that by putting on those things, he's actually trying to emulate his dad because his dead yeah. dad did do all those things. So in a way, he's wearing the clothes of his dad. 
Yeah, he, goes, he goes, do that. goes to work, he wears his, what, probably what his father wore to yeah. work in the 70s. Exactly. It's a kind to, of it, when he goes on stage, yeah. Exactly, so it's yeah. that kind of idea. So, But, I mean, I think the other thing about him uh, in the book is that fact of how sceptical he is of success... And yeah. any kind of commercial and money and everything, he's really nervous that it's going to sort of taint somehow the art. Right, well, obviously with the music videos, not wanting to do music videos, not wanting to do that sort of nervousness about what success will do to him and what it will do to his work is also really kind of yeah, in there as well, yeah. isn't it? My favourite bit is that the two favourite bits is that is when during the court cases, which are kind of keeping him out of the game, you know, between just before Born to Run and so forth. Uh, and After Born to Run. Okay, well, he thinks he'll never make another yeah. record. And, um, and he, he, he gets gloomy about it, unsurprisingly. And he says at one point in the book, he says, I thought about it, and I realised that all you'd have to do with me is drop me anywhere in America, I would walk until I found a roadhouse, and I would find a band... And then I would rock your world because I can. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting because he'd worked out at the end. He was whatever age he was, 27 yeah. or something like that. He worked out, that's my skill set. I do this and I do this brilliantly well. The other thing I thought in the book was how important it is to have champions. Because John, Mike Appel, his first yeah. manager, I love the scene where he, um, he takes him to John Hammond who discovered what, Billie Holiday, Aretha Franklin, Bob and Bob Dylan. And Mike Appel says, I know you discovered Bob Dylan and, and, my, and Billie Holiday and Aretha Franklin, but I just want to know whether those were flukes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the real deal. I was like, and Bruce is like, OK, you really set me up a bit high here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but, the, but I don't think without him, without John Landau, without these people... So it's interesting how raw talent has to also go alongside people who are willing to kind of champion you as oh, well. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And people, yeah, well, it fascinates me, the relationship between him and Landau. Because have you, have you met Landau? Because Landau is clearly a person who dreamed about being a rock star from the age of about 10 and never could do it. And he met this boy who could do it. You know, he could do everything he couldn't do. So he supplied him with the theory to back up. But he also supplied him with the ideas and, and oh, yeah. having the kind of conversations that I imagine he wanted to have with his dad about art and film and what yeah, happened yeah, yeah. he has them with, with, yeah, with, with, yeah. with Landau or whatever. You. Um, I mean, one thing I did think about the book, I mean, I love, love, love the book, but one of the things I was slightly disappointed with was that the first 200 pages are about up to 1975 or 78, and then he kind of races through the last 25 years so quickly and you just think it's interesting how he obviously is obsessed with the past and, that, and those things but you know he, he kind of skims through every album after Tunnel of Love just like a couple of pages and it's almost like that stuff is in a way more interesting because how you deal with but the, don't, you, the don't, you, don't you think maybe rock stars just forget that stuff but they still remember maybe. when they were struggling to make it I think they remember that very clearly I think that might be true and that's also what you know he wrote this without having a contract. He wrote what he wanted to yeah, write. Yeah. And maybe he's more interested in the earlier stuff yeah. because it's the forming of the myth rather than, you know, and then there's another album and what do I do about this or whatever. But in terms of just the stories we haven't heard, you know, how you deal with those... I mean, he's, he's very honest about the E Street Band as well, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I love that bit where uh, Clarence's nephew auditions for the E Street Band oh, yes. and turns up late and isn't prepared... And he gives him the mother and father of a bollocking. 
and that was that, that was the heavy. That father. was a good that stuff. Because then you get a real sense that this guy is a bit of an autocrat. You and know. he matters to him. And how dare it not matter to you? You know. I loved also the fact that when he was having contract negotiations with Clarence Clemens, the saxophone player, Clemens wanted an additional clause or an additional fee simply for being Clarence Clemens. Yeah. <laughs> Image rights, I suppose. Yeah. Is there anything you wish was in the book that, it, well, you've talked about slightly more detail about making the albums and so forth? I'll tell you what I think I wish was in it. I, I've been thinking about this ever since I read about this recently. I don't know if anybody saw this, that, that, um, that uh, recently David Geffen took a party on his yacht in some fabulous sun-kissed ocean. I don't know where it was. And the party on David Geffen's yacht were... Mr. and Mrs. Tom Hanks, Mr. and Mrs. Oprah Winfrey, Mr. and Mrs. Bruce Springsteen, and Mr. and Mrs. Barack Obama. <laughs> and you think, God, I'd like to read a chapter about that, you know. <laughs> no, seriously, that kind of, that wealthy, incredibly privileged life, you know, because there are a bunch of people sitting around this fabulous table, no doubt, eating fabulous food and being served hand on foot who are all known in one way or another as being champions of the downtrodden. Aren't they? They've all, they've all become immensely yeah, famous I mean, I, I and powerful. Think, I think a fly on the wall and those kind of conversations would be interesting. I think there is a bit of... I mean, he sort of admits that there is a bit of, you know, wanting to maintain the myth of who you are as well. And I think that sort of stuff would probably make it a little bit difficult. I mean, I, I think the things I was quite interested in is just that you'd hear... That for me, one of the most interesting years were the years between Tunnel of Love and Human Touch, so eight, the, the sort of the lost years, when he just went on motorcycles. And I would read, because at the time I was a fan, but there was, he wasn't releasing any music, and I'd just read about how he'd, become, he'd be driving through the desert and some waitress would be serving him, and the waitress would explain that she had cancer, and the next day a, a cheque for £250,000 would work... And it, I would just love to know what his take on those kind of random yeah, encounters yeah, were. Yeah. Have you heard the story about when he was in the cinema? And, um, oh, and, uh, yeah, the, 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 the young, the teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, tell people. Uh, well, you, know, you probably know the story, do you? He, went to, um, he was in, this is 1980, so he's not a small, you know, he's a big star, but he went to see um, Stardust Memories, the Woody Allen film, on his own. And a guy sort of taps him behind the back and says, is this what fame's really like? Um, and he says, not really. And he goes, well, in that case, could you tell that to my mum? And so... Bruce Springsteen ends up going to dinner with, at the house of this random person who was sitting behind him. And he has dinner with him, and, this, and the woman can't believe it, and they have to get a cover of Born to Run to prove that this is Bruce Springsteen. And they spend three or four hours with him, and eventually they, they, he leaves. And he talks about how, for him, this was an amazing connection with ordinary people. But I'm also interested in what is it that compels a big star who's released a massive album to want to have and remain and retain that kind I of connection. Th- now, I think because he genuinely has never lost touch with what it felt like to be 14 and to be looking up yeah. at Mitch Ryder or Eric Burden of the Animals or whatever. And I think he's, he's preserved that somewhere inside himself. I mean, I, he you, understands that really well. And I've never met any other rock star who understood it anything like as well as and he I mean, does. You've, you know, you've written a whole book about rock stars at the moment. And I think that... For me, one of the things I like about him is that the thing about heroes, as other people say, don't meet your heroes, they will disappoint you, whatever. And I have, in the course of my years, I've met so many people who've met him in different ways. And every single story is consistent. That fundamentally, yes, he's going to be egocentrical, egocentric. Yes, he's going to be, you know, hugely uh, attention-seeking. All the things that you have to have as a rock star. But underneath it all, he is actually a good guy. 
who kind of, and I think that comes, comes through in the book, you know, and I think there aren't that many people who can reach those kind of levels and still some sense remain having that human touch. Well, look, we've uh, we probably sold a few more extra copies of his book, you know, so he'll be able to uh, afford to, you know, go on a further cruise as a consequence of this. Uh, you got your fingers crossed that you're going to get a response, positive response to your email, seeking the music, use of the music for your, uh, for your film. It's only music like it. Oh, right, OK. Uh, and what else are you up to? Um... I'm actually working on a second book, and um, yeah, just you know, I'm just trying. To, I'm, I'm juggling quite a lot of things, but I, I think ultimately, when you write a book, whether it's this one or, or the one that I wrote, you have to have something which you, a story you want to tell. So the first book was about me trying to understand myself via my dad through Bruce, and so I'm now writing something trying to understand myself via my daughter. All right. Okay. Well, best of luck with that. Safraz, uh, you brought a few copies of your book here. I've got a couple. Yeah. Yeah, a couple there in your, in your bag, which you'd be happy to. Uh, sell to you and uh, an autograph for you. Um, you can get one of those. What does Ted Heath used to say? A rare, a rare unsigned copy. <laughs> you can have a rare unsigned copy. No, you're doing yourself down. It's, it's an absolutely terrific read and it's an extraordinary, unique story. It really is. Uh, Greetings from Burry Park, race, religion and rock and roll. Would you please thank Safraz Mansour. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.